Man, y'all be singing. Be singing this morning. That was encouraging. Thank you very much. I've said this before. I don't think you guys realize how uh, how encouraging it is for a preacher to, you know, you're about to go up on stage and the, and the congregation behind you is just singing with full hearts. So please, I just want to encourage you to keep doing that more and more. It just really puts puts wind in our sails. So thank you. Thank you for that gift. Uh, if you are with us and you are new, just want to say welcome to you. It's pretty, pretty packed this morning, so if there's some open seats you might consider. Just consider maybe scooching in a little bit. We've got a member gathering after this service we're really excited about, uh, so we're going to try to, we're not going to be doing communion uh, after the, the sermon to um, create enough time for us to get ready for that. Uh, but if you're new with us, we're glad you're here. I want to make it really abundantly clear always why we would gather here every Sunday uh, to sing songs, listen to the Bible taught, and give, and all these things, uh, and it's because we love Jesus. Uh, he is the, the king of the universe, he is the God of this world, of the universe, and he is God in the flesh who never sinned, he died for our sins, uh, to take away our sins, to cleanse us from sins, and to create a free gift pathway through which you can find reconciliation with your creator, God the Father. And he, three days after he died, he rose again from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, demons, death, and hell, so that anyone and everyone, no matter what back, background, ethnicity, race, what class you are in, if you have the capacity to trust someone for your salvation, you can trust Jesus and find salvation permanently, everlastingly in Christ. So he is worthy of our praise and adoration. That's why we gather here on Sundays, and we are so thankful for, for Jesus in that way. Just by way of um, just kind of getting you guys ready, in our fall and spring semesters, we like to kick off our small group ministry known as Growth Group. So the first, yes, exciting. Uh, more and more, we are realizing, it's just obvious, this is going to be a major pathway through which, as the church grows, that you guys are going to be able to experience what the church is caring for each other. Uh, and so we're actually talking at a leadership level, just how do we really build into these and, and create these in such a way where you guys can be receive the full blessing of being the people of God for each other. As usual, the Sunday before our groups start, we do what's called Group Connect. We just kind of put tables out in the back, and you can meet the leaders face-to-face and see which groups you would like to be a part of, um, whether it's location or time, whatever it is. So we look forward to, to that. We have two more weeks, believe it or not, in First Peter. It is so sad. It's okay, though, because we I hope this is okay, Pastor Mike. We're, we're launching Second Peter in the spring. We're really excited. Going to continue with some Peter, uh, so we won't totally leave Peter, but we're still going to stay with him a little bit. Um, and so, we're wrapping up this week and next week, First Peter. And um, as we begin, let me just pray, ask the Spirit of God to help us, because um, it's 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 a tough one today. It's a pretty it's a pretty um, dense, thick one today, and so we need the Spirit to help us to receive it. And I need help to preach it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that it is your breath in our lungs that so we pour it out in praise. Um, your spirit dwells within those who believe in you. And your spirit works deeply within us. And it's by your spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. You send the spirit of adoption into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Father, we know that you give us good gifts. 
And one of those gifts is your spirit to help us to receive and understand and embrace your word. Would you help these people, all of us, to receive your word about what you are doing behind the fiery trials that are according to your will. They can confuse us and perplex us, even frustrate us, but you do not leave us on our own. You make clear what you're doing behind the scenes. Help me, Lord Jesus, to preach your word faithfully, clearly, powerfully, graciously, with a pastoral heart. In Christ's name I pray, amen. There are, there are a few things that I think you would agree with me that um, are more frustrating and confusing and head-scratching than when you have to go through long seasons of pain and suffering and it doesn't go away. It just doesn't go away. And in fact, for some of you, you feel like it's just going to be with you for the rest of your life. This is, this is what I have. This is what I have to deal with. That's it. Until the day I, day I die, this is, this is my portion from God. And because we don't really have too much of a problem with like the short, small amounts of pain, like the quick little bursts, you know, it kind of comes and goes and it hurts a little bit, but eventually it goes away. You know, I've never met the person who was like, man, I'm really struggling to believe in God. Why? I stubbed my toe yesterday and it really hurts. I just don't know why God would allow me to stub my toe. We don't really have problems with these, like the small pain. It's the, the, the long, enduring, deep pain. And if you're here and you're not a believer in the God of the Bible, that is the all good, just, merciful, kind, gracious, loving, compassionate God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that that God exists, there really is no why. It doesn't make sense for you to ask why would there be pain and suffering because there is no why. It's just life. It happens to you. But if you do believe in the God of the Bible, then understandably, there are times when you can ask yourself the question, why, why is this happening to me? Why would God let this happen to me? Why would he bring this into our life? I have been faithful to him. I attend church every Sunday, not out of a self-righteous heart, but out of glad submission to him. I love his word. I am generous. I love his people. I give I, all these things, not out of a self-righteous heart, out of a humble heart, and yet... This is difficult that I'm going through. That is confusing. And what Peter's going to encourage you today with, if I could put my sermon in a sentence for you to walk away with, it's this. At the end of the day, suffering is not a sufficient reason to be suspicious of God. Because there is a temptation when you have to go through a long season of pain Initially, you're trusting God, you're relying upon him, you're faithful to his, to his word, and you're praying to him. But after a while, you, you begin to realize, oh yeah, this same one who's with me is also the one who could take it from me. He knew this was coming, he could have made it stop, and yet he let it happen, and he's still not taking it away, despite the fact that I'm asking him to take it away. And because of that, we begin to grow in our suspicions of him. We begin to put him at arm's length. We think he's not worthy of our trust. But at the end of the day, every single word in the sentence, it matters. At the end of the day, that just means when all things are taken into consideration, when all things are considered, everything he has said, everything that is actually true about your trials 
when you take all those things into consideration, suffering, it is a reason to be suspicious of God, but when you consider everything, it is not a sufficient reason. When you take everything into consideration, it makes those reasons not strong enough to stand and support your suspicion. Your suspicions of God must eventually go away when you've seen everything that he has told you and revealed to you in his word about what he's doing behind the scenes. Now, I'm going to preach this sermon in a little bit a unique way. I'm going to begin at the most fundamental reality of the passage, the foundational truth supporting everything else in the passage, and it's towards the end. And the reason why I'm doing that is because it's, it's, the, it's the foundation of the whole passage, everything that Peter is building upon. But also, it's, it's a pretty tough, it's difficult to explain. And it's a bit tough to understand. And so rather than wait to the end of the sermon when your attention spans are running out and get to the difficult part and, and potentially leave you confused, I want to be, do it at the beginning when your attention spans are focused. Clear up the difficult parts, and I feel like if we can clear that up, things will be much more smooth sailing for the rest over time. Sound good? So the foundational truth of this passage is in verses 17 and 18. And the reason why we know that is because the first word in verse in 17 is for. That just means it's, it's the reason. So 17 through 18 is the reason. It's the basis. It's the port supporting verses 12 through 16. So 17 and 18, foundational truth. Peter is building everything else before it upon that. Now what about verse 19? We're in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Verse 19 begins with therefore. When you see that word, that just means it's about to give you an implication or a conclusion from what came before it, which is 17 and 18. So 17 and 18, within it is jam-packed with this truth that Peter wants you to understand that everything before it and after it depends on. Is built on. So what's so special about 17 and 18? It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, that is Christians, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If you're like me, when you first read that, when you read 12 through 16, you're like, okay, Peter, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. Got you. Uh, yes, I understand that. When you get to 17 and 18, it gets a little bit perplexing. Because as we who, if you're a Christian, you, you, you understand the concept of God judging unbelievers, those who reject Jesus Christ. But this idea of God judging his household, his people, Right? It says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, it uses the same, same idea of household. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. He's talking to Christians. Now, this is not the first time that Peter has talked about God judging those who are his. Pastor Mike preached back in chapter 1, verse 17, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So this is not a foreign concept to Peter. God judges believers and unbelievers. What do we make of this? The first thing you need to realize is that the judgment of God, there is a day, a future judgment day that God has fixed. It is determined. It's already set. It will not be moved. Book of Acts says, God has fixed a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. All people, past, present, future, dead or alive, will stand before Jesus and you will give an account, <clears throat> believers and unbelievers alike. That day is coming. But here's the thing. This passage seems to be saying, and it is saying it, that sometimes God teases out some of that future judgment into the present day. He lets it leak out in diluted form. Another place you can go is Romans chapter 1 talks about the wrath of God being poured out on this present day. He hands people over to their sin. Yes, there is a future day of wrath by which God's, the fullness of his fury upon sin for those who are not in Christ will be released. But sometimes he teases it out in the present day. And when he does tease it out, he begins with his household, his people, those who are his. It's time for to begin the household of God if it begins with us Christians. Okay, the first thing to realize is that, well, yes, there are two people in this passage that, that, that Peter's talking about. Those who obey the gospel of God and those who do not obey the gospel of God. See, look at me again at verse 17, last phrase. If it begins with us, if it begins with us, what would be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So there are those who obey the gospel of God and those who disobey the gospel of God. Now, when we hear the phrase, obey the gospel of God, <clears throat> excuse me, babe, can you hand me the water, please? <clears throat> it's my wife, Karen, she's amazing, love her. Um, <clears throat> typically, when we hear of gospel of God, we think believe, trust, faith. This is obey. What does it mean to obey the gospel of God? The gospel is a command. God commands you to repent of your sins and believe in his son. The gospel, the, part of the gospel is an imperative. You must repent of your sins and believe in Christ if you want to be saved. The gospel is not a suggestion. God is not through his servants, hey, would you please consider just possibly repenting of your sins and then maybe if you would like to, it'd be great if you could trust in Jesus. All people ever, every single person in this room, if you are clinging to, un, to hidden, known, rebellious sin and not to Jesus, through my mouth, God is telling you today, you must repent of your sins. You must let go of your sins. You are clinging to a precious thing that is in rebellion against God. And if you hold on to it, God at the end of time will say, you can have it if you want, but you can have it in hell. And if you would like, if you want everlasting joy with your creator who is good, 
You have to let go of your, your sin. Do that and believe in Jesus in faith. So those who obey that and disobey that, judgment comes on both of them. But the outcome is different. Judgment comes on both, to both, but it is different. The outcome is different. If you notice at the end of verse 17, it talks about what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. That, that word, outcome, is used one other time in 1 Peter, back in chapter 1. And it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. This is talking about Jesus. And believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, though those who obey the gospel of God receive this temporary, this life, worldly judgment from God, the outcome is not damnation, the outcome is salvation. So this judgment that, that, that comes upon his people into the present day will never result in your damnation if you obey the gospel of God. But if you do not obey the gospel of God, the outcome will be the damnation of your soul. Not only that, it says in verse 18, and, and he quotes Proverbs 11 here, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, that first phrase is a bit confusing because it makes it seem as if sometimes Christians are saved and sometimes they're not. Righteous is scarcely saved. But I've, I've looked this up, and what scholars will say is a, a, a better translation is, is probably if the righteous is saved with difficulty. So the outcome is salvation, but it's going to come through difficulty. And this difficulty that you go through on your pathway of obtaining salvation in Christ at the end of time is a difficult pathway. This is why Peter's all, the context of all is fiery trial, suffering, pain. So that means that this judgment, not only does it not the outcome is not damnation, but salvation. It is not punishment. It is refinement. That's huge. It is not a form of punishment or wrath or anger of God for punishing you. Rather, it is in the form of difficulties and trials meant by God to refine you, not to punish you. So let me try to summarize and simplify this. I told you this was a, a dense passage here. So there's, a, there's coming a day in the future. We don't know when that is. Anybody who tells you they know what it is, they're loony. They, no one knows. Only, only the Father knows that. There's a day coming when God will judge the world. But in the present day, God leaks out, teases out some of his judgment, and he begins with his people. But this judgment here will not result in your damnation, but your salvation. And it is not punishment. It is refinement. Now, I was tempted to say that what this is talking about is the discipline of God, but that is incorrect. Because number one, there is a Greek word for discipline, and it's used in Hebrews chapter 12. Peter does not use it here. He doesn't say discipline. He says judgment. The other thing, the reason why discipline, the idea of discipline is unhelpful, is because we discipline, while we discipline those whom we love, we do it when they've done something wrong. 
They have sinned. They have made an error. You are in the wrong. I love you. I'm going to correct you. These people are doing nothing wrong. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This whole entire book is about suffering unjustly. When you've done nothing, you're doing good and you're loving people, being faithful to God, and there's trials coming your way and you don't deserve it. So it is God's way. God is moving forward like a judge towards his people to refine them on a path with a result in their salvation and they've done nothing wrong. It's not for some sin in their life. You're walking faithful. Because of this, you know this now. At the end of the day, suffering is not a sufficient reason to be suspicious of God. And upon this reality, Peter builds the rest of his point. Back to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fi- at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. <clears throat> The first word, beloved. This could be my whole sermon. It's not going to be, but it could. He's talking about something really hard here. And he begins with beloved. Beloved means cherished one, precious one, dearly loved in the sight of God. I'm so sorry. Dearly loved in the sight of God. Why would Peter do this? Why would he begin this way? Because he knows that when you go through the fiery trial, as he's going to say, when you undergo this refining, purifying judgment of God upon you, you will be tempted to question God's love for you. If God loved me, fill in the blank. If he was a good father... Fill in the blank. And Peter wants to put front, before, <laughs> before he gets theological on you, he wants to clear up God's heart for you. He wants to put that front and center because he knows that when you're going through the pain, with the only thing you can think about when you're going through pain is the pain. It's like right here, right in your face. And so Peter's trying to squeeze right here in front of you, right in front of the pain. Don't forget, you are one of God's beloved. the presence of pain in your life will never, can never detract from the pleasure of God in you. I'm going to say that again because someone needs to hear that. The presence of pain in your life cannot detract from the pleasure of God in you. No matter how much, not even a lifetime of pain could ever separate you from the love of Jesus. The amount, of, the amount and the duration of your hardship as a Christian in life is not evidence that God is against you. It is not a sufficient reason 
You cannot legitimately hold it in front of his face and say, because of this, I am justified in believing you do not love me. And Peter's saying that is so far from the truth. And he he says, look at the cross. I have shown you my love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he wants you to understand God's heart for you right off the bat. And he says, do not be surprised. Beloved, God loves you. Don't forget that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So it says to test you. That's what God is doing. As the judge, he can, does, has the right and the authority to test you. Now, we need to be really clear what we mean by test. Because when I think of test, I think pass, fail. Let's see how much you don't know. Let's see how dumb you are. Let's see you fail. So when we think of testing, we imagine God up in heaven throwing pain bombs into our life with his arms folded, waiting to see how you respond. Oh, I just know they're going to give up on Jesus. Hey, 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 angels, watch this. Oh, told you. The word test means to expose what's really there. He's not trying to see if you have what it takes. He knows you don't have what it takes. He's God. He knows how you you respond. So he's bringing it in your way not to see what's in you, but to form something in you. He's trying to build the strength in you. He's trying to test you and to prove you. He's bringing the fiery trials like a furnace to burn away the superficialities of your life to bring out with a little more beauty and a little more clarity the amazing work he's already begun in you. Philippians 1, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You think he's going to get you there with your feet up on a cruise? I was just talking to a couple. They were just on a cruise. There's nothing wrong with cruises. (laughs) He's going to get you there through difficulty if the righteous is saved with difficulty. So he's testing you to form and to bring out the work even more that he's begun in you. And how you respond to this. I'm sorry, I forgot one more thing. Because you know that he's testing you, he says, do not be surprised. It is amazing, biblically speaking, I I, I can sympathize. Biblically speaking, it is amazing how much we as Christians grumble in suffering. And Peter's like, why are you surprised? This is... This is coming your way. You knew it. You worship a suffering Messiah. We we worship and preach and proclaim and evangelize about God in the flesh suffering for our sins. 
That's who you follow. And Peter's like, this is not strange, as though something strange were happening to you. The Bible's telling you, don't scratch your heads. Don't scratch your heads. So if we, okay, so if we don't, okay, so you're telling me don't be surprised. Okay, so how should I respond? Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay. We are to rejoice. That's what it says. He commands you to rejoice. When you go through the fiery trial, fiery trial, fire hurts. And God says, when the fire trial comes, you need to rejoice. Now, in the words of Pastor Mike, these are not spirit finger happy, you know, was this a spirit, spirit finger happiness, smiley faces, emojis? Here's my question. My question is always this. What does it mean then? What does it mean to rejoice in suffering? What is that? How do I rejoice when I am actually in pain crying? So, I'm going to do the best I can. But here's how I would put into words what it means to rejoice in sufferings. It's when the fiery trial burns, and it hurts, burns away your earthly crutches. Those things you lean on for security and pleasure and rest that you ought not to be leaning on. It's when the fiery trial burns away our earthly crutches. And then you lean with restful gladness upon Jesus as your all-sufficient king. And you're crying, but deep down you know, I'm still in good hands. I'm still in good hands. This hurts a lot, but I'm still in good hands. Many of you, I know there are some of you out there who would say that you, the time you found Jesus most Precious was when your life was in most pain. Because what you thought was giving you rest and security was taken away. And you really laid hold of Jesus and you were like, oh my gosh, he's so much better. I mean, this is a small, small example. I've used this example for a couple years ago, I think. One of the first times I ever preached here. I mean, Many of you guys know I played football in high school and college, and football was my thing. It was like my glory. It gave me so much. I was a Christian, though, you know, but I, but I mean, football was my God. It was my thing, man. It gave me so much sense of, like, purpose and all that kind of stuff. And then my senior year of, of college, I, my knee blew out, and I'm telling you, when that was taken away, that was when my life with Jesus just took off. I said, football, what's that? <laughs> I found him to be so, so much better. He took away an earthly crutch, and man, it hurt. And I was like, what the heck, Lord? And he was like, lean on my son, and you will find something better. Even in the pain. 
So as you're praying and you're crying and you're hurting, underneath it all, there's a deep sense of, I'm still in good hands. And it's going to be okay. That's what I believe it means to rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And, And responding this way, friends, is of utmost importance. It's very serious because it has eternal implications. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Watch this. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's two, two rejoicings. Rejoicing now in the pain and rejoicing in the future with Jesus. And this seems to be saying that if you want to rejoice with Jesus in the future, you got to rejoice with Jesus in the fire. So, so if, if you don't treasure Jesus in the fire... What makes you think that you will treasure him in the future? The only kind of faith that saves, that is true and genuine, is the kind that endures and lasts through the pain. I say this gently, but if you want to know someone's heart, if they really believe in Jesus, watch how they respond when they go through pain? Do they turn on God or do they trust deeper in God? It reveals a lot. It exposes a lot. This is very, very important. If you want to rejoice in Christ in the future, you got to rejoice in Christ in the fire. And this is all Peter's point in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 or 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, it was tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You are grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith. What, is, what exactly is God purifying? He's purifying your faith the things that you're leaning on, trusting in. And that's what rejoicing in the suffering is. He burns away the earthly crutches so that you only lay hold of Christ and you discover that this faith in Jesus, this clinging to this Christ, is infinitely more precious than all the gold and money and salary you could ever hope for. It is more precious than gold, it says right there. He goes on to say in verse 14 through 16, we won't go over all this, just a couple things. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. Just a couple things I want to highlight. The first Since the reason you're blessed in the fiery trials, in the fire of insults and suffering and persecution and all the various trials, as it mentions in chapter one, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That means the presence of pain in your life is not evidence of God's absence in your life. It's actually the time when he draws nearest to you in your life. 
You are blessed. Why? Why are you blessed in the fiery trials? Why am I blessed when I'm hurting God? Because that's when the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's when it draws near to you. That's when he comes closest to you. So the reason why you can be blessed, the reason why if you're not even, the suffering hasn't come yet, the trial hasn't come yet, some of you may be wondering, how am I going to respond? Cling to this. That when it does come, the spirit of glory, it will come upon you. And it will rest upon you. And it will sustain you. The presence of pain in your life is not evidence of his absence, but of his presence. And the reason why this promise is sure, the reason why Jesus will be present with you in the fiery trial is because he secured that promise by enduring the fire of your punishment on the cross for your sins. He endured all of that for your sins, bearing it all, what you did deserve, to secure the everlasting promise that even in the fiery trial, the things that you don't deserve, you've done nothing wrong, Jesus has secured and promised through his death and resurrection that that will never, ever fail you. And then in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So the presence of pain in your life also is not opposition from God. It's an opportunity to glorify God. There is few times, if not no other time, that God is more glorified than in one of his children who hold fast to him and rejoice in him no matter how hard it is. Because this world, when they don't have Christ, they have to rely upon things within the world. And so that when they see that you are still, even though you're crying and even though you're in pain, you're still okay. You're still secure. They don't know what to do with that. What are you holding on to? These things over here where all these things were taken from you, how are you still okay? Because the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon me. As the heat of the fiery trial turns up, those who cling to Jesus truly, their hearts do not grow cold, but they burn even hotter and brighter. Peter said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What are those good deeds? You think it's just like going to a soup kitchen? Those are, that's great. You can do that. It's just going to a soup kitchen. That's not going to win anyone to Jesus. Your good deeds are when you are still kind and gracious and stable and steadfast and rejoicing in, in Christ even as the pain comes. Because that, that's what shines bright in this world. And this is all built upon the point that I said earlier. This is God's, refine, God's refining and purifying judgment is coming upon you. Not because he's punishing you. He's refining you. This will not result in your damnation. It will result in your salvation. And it's not because of some sin in your life. And you were his beloved. So don't waste your trial. Don't waste your trial.
God's trying to do something in you more than you could ever dream. And some of you are resisting the work that he's doing. And you're preventing, you're preventing the fullness of the glory that he's trying to form in you through your faith in Christ. And because of this, he concludes with his big point. And this is where I get this idea of suffering is not a sufficient reason to be suspicious of God. Because he concludes this way. Therefore, because of everything, verses 12 all the way through, or 17 through 18, everything else before that, therefore, Peter stands upon all he's just been saying. He stands up on it. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You can entrust yourself to him. What's the opposite of entrusting? Getting suspicious. I don't know. I don't know if I can really trust the Lord. I don't know if I can, I can trust him. I don't, I don't know if he's really good. Let those who suffer according to God's will, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And many people will point out that it doesn't say faithful father. You would expect him to say faithful father. Why does he say faithful creator? Because creator implies this idea that he, his hands are in control of everything around you. He's the creator. He governs and controls and oversees everything. And yet these hands are not wicked hands. They're not evil hands. They're not bad hands. They're not hateful hands. They're faithful hands. It's the same hand. In one hand, God's turning up the heat in your life. But there's another hand that you don't see. And it's holding you up. He's faith, and he won't take his hand away. He won't take his hand away. So at the end of the day, suffering is not a sufficient reason to be suspicious of God, beloved. I want to conclude by doing a personal reflection on something that I've, and I ran this by my wife, and it was okay with her because I talk about her too. Um, there are three passages in, in the book of 1 Peter, because we're coming to the end of the book next week. There are three passages in the book of 1 Peter that talk about their, their main point is like suffering and persecution and pain and unjustly. And I got all of them. I got all three of them. I, they were, my, Pastor Mike and I sit down and we kind of talk about, hey, which, which Sundays are, we gonna, are you going to preach here? And I'll preach here, you preach there. And these passages were randomly assigned to me. Randomly. But it, it seems as if I didn't choose these passages. God chose these passages for me. And so my, I'm not asking, what, why would God have me, me preach these sermons to you for you? I'm asking, why did he give these per- passages for me? Why would he have me prepare these? What's God doing in me? And I, I tend to drift towards self-reflection and, and self-examination, almost to a fault. I'm a little bit weird like that. Um, so here are a few reasons why I think God would have, why, why is he having me prepare these passages? Number one, the past six months, really since we started First Peter, it's kind of crazy. The past six months have been a season of difficulty for me and my wife. That is, Things have come upon us that we wish would not be there. It's nothing having to do with, with our relationship. We're great. She even brought me water earlier. She was really nice. Um, it has to do with the things that God has brought into her life to test us. 
Thus, preparing these sermons has been feeding me and us to sustain us without even us being aware of it. Number two, lately, for whatever reason, I have more so than normal dreamt of being a man of deep, godly integrity, generosity, and contentment. Those three things specifically. Because I've learned as you go through life, at the end of the day, all you have is your integrity. That's all you really got. And if there is if there's one thing that makes, that makes you tempted to compromise on your integrity, your generosity, and your contentment, it is when things in your life are not the way you'd wish them to be. And so holding on to those three things is really hard. And for whatever reason, God has given me a dream to really form those three things in me deeply And there's a temptation in these moments to compromise rather than remain convicted. Thus, preparing these sermons has been building into me the resources I need to fulfill this dream of being a man of godly integrity, generosity, and contentment. Number three, he is preparing us for future fiery trials. That had I not prepared these sermons, I would not be able to endure them. I am fully aware that tomorrow is not guaranteed. And even me saying that probably puts some of you in like so much anxiety. And I say that not jokingly, like seriously, like the thought, like even your fire trial could come on your way home at any moment. And for some, that some of you, you can't, you can't, you can't possibly consider dwelling upon that because of, of the amount of fear it gives you to thinking about what could be taken away. What many of us are tempted to do with this fact is get suspicious of God and hold back a little out of self-protection. We don't want to put ourselves or our hearts out there too much or else we might get hurt. But this is characteristic of someone who is suspicious of God and does not trust him to be there even when I fall flat on my face in humiliation of epic proportions. It says when you go through the suffering, the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. It will rest upon you. Therefore, even though you know your fiery trial could come in 30 minutes, you can bank that the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. And it will be enough. And so you can stick your neck out there. You can have courage. You can keep walking. You can keep loving. You can keep sticking your neck out there knowing that even if I fall hard, Christ is going to be there. And if you get suspicious and hesitant, that's not the good thing to do. He is faithful so I can stick my neck out there no matter what happens. And I think God had me do this, this, these sermons because I tend towards self-reflection and he wanted me to notice that I preached all three of these to reflect in front of you that you might do the same for yourself. What what is God teaching you through this sermon? This sermon is not about me. This sermon is about the glory of God and the people of God. What's he doing in you? What's he shaping in you? What's he forming in you? What's he trying to reveal in you? Maybe you should reflect a little bit and consider that and take it to heart because at the end of the day, suffering is not a sufficient reason to be suspicious of God. Here's the last thing we're gonna do. How many of you guys have heard this song 
How Firm a Foundation? Anyone? It's a great classic song. And there's this, these, these verses in here that are just so perfect. So you're going to sing this with me right now. And if you don't know the song, you don't have to sing. If you do know the song, I want you to sing because I don't want to be up here alone by myself. Look like an idiot singing. Um, and maybe some of you are here, you know the song, but you're like, Pastor, if I sing, I'm going to cry. I can't sing, Pastor, I'm going to cry. Then don't sing. Let us, who are singing, sing for you. Let us just, this song just minister to you. And uh, you guys ready? Okay. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume. And your goal to refine. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for we thank you for the fiery trials. As strange as that sounds, we thank you for the fiery trials. We thank you that this purifying purifying and refining judgment is not you punishing us. We are still your beloved in your eyes. I pray for those who right now, who feel suspicious of God, that this truth, that you were, through the fire of trial, testing and proving and bringing out gold in them, a purified, beautiful, glad trust in Jesus. I pray for anyone who is currently going through a very difficult season that your spirit of glory and of God would just fall on them. Just fall on them. and all of their reasons for being suspicious and distrustful of you, that they would just evaporate in your love. Would you bless us and encourage us as we sing? In Jesus' name. Would you guys stand as we continue in worship?